From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. I had no background in metal, and it wasn't something I'd been exposed to before, nor nor uh, my fellow founder, Andrew Collins. And we had to start somewhere. We just had this kernel of an idea that we were going to change the world. Uh, we had to backfill how. So we didn't know how. We just knew we were going to. We had to backfill how we were going to do that. That was Marcus Pont. Marcus is the CEO and founder of Domin. Domin Fluid Power is a product development company specializing in the development of fluid power subsystems and systems manufacturing through the utilization of both subtractive and added manufacturing, specifically DMLS or metal 3D printing. Within Domin, Marcus manages key aspects of the product development process from fundamental knowledge of the technology through to financing the R&D of new products and technology and managing the strategy of Domin. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Marcus, great to have you on the podcast. I'm excited for the conversation today. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about with the work you're doing. So um, like we do with all of our guests, I'd like to start at the beginning, give everyone some context of kind of where you grew up, what kind of got you down the path of of engineering and, and where you are today. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Starting at the beginning, so I grew up just south of London in England and enjoyed a great childhood with with great opportunities. And I I think that is one of the things that sticks with me to date is about creating opportunities for people and companies and things in the world. And that's stuck with me to date, really. I started to get interested in engineering through an enjoyment of problem solving, being in, into maths, into physics, into science, and seeing engineering as a way to solve problems. I studied mechanical engineering at Bath University in the UK, did a, a master's of engineering where I studied a broad range of topics and was fortunate to be exposed to 3D printing throughout my university career. So in that four years, I was uh, mentored at university by a gentleman called Adrian Bowyer, who had developed a process a printer called RepRap. And it was through that that I first got exposed to 3D printing. And that happened to be a really fortuitous event because it it exposed me to something that I wouldn't have otherwise really known about. And I saw the opportunities with that. And I started to get to the end of my university degree, having seen some of the world of engineering, seen some of the opportunities, some of the limitations, some of the drawbacks. And I'd look out into the, the wide world that there was in the UK. And I was drawn towards these things of, wanting to make an impact in the world, wanting to create opportunities for other people, create opportunities for success, for better technology, for making the world better. And that that desire 
for impact and change led me down this path that we're on with Domin today. So what was it about seeing a 3D printer for the first time that kind of gave you that spark? What Was there something like, did you like working with your hands? You're a mechanical engineer, so that can maybe part of it, but what, what was it that caught your eye? Yeah, impact, I think. Impact is the thing that, that resonates with me a lot. And I first saw it at, at university and I was sold a vision by this guy that he wanted to create a machine that could create itself. And that would, that had the opportunity to, to change the way we think about what we do and make a big impact in the world. And so 3D printing for me, the thing that excited me was the opportunity for something revolutionary. And that became a residual thought in my mind for a number of years. And it wasn't until I joined the engineering world, really, after university. And my, my first job was in a, an aerospace firm where we were developing cutting-edge, high-speed, high-performance actuators for helicopters, rotorcraft, missiles, things like that. And I was based in the research and development team and we had to do things quickly and we were working on aggressive timeframes. And so we decided, I decided to use 3D printing as a tool to help us deliver those time, time challenges. But my experience to date, the exposure I'd had at university was plastic. And at the time, that was what I, what I knew. But we had to make things in metal. So we decided to try making something in metal. And I had this residual thought in the back of my mind that 3D printing might have the potential to disrupt and make an impact. And we got this printed thing back. It was a titanium lever. I mean, it... It shouldn't have been printed at all, really. It was just to do things quickly. And the cost of it was was crazy high. But we picked this thing up and myself and, and my colleague, we looked at this and we thought, you know what? This is a real piece of metal. This is going to change the world. And that's what drew me into printing. It was going to was going to change the world. And that's been often said about printing and sometimes said in, the, in a way that I don't think it is going to change the world, but I do think it will. And seeing this piece of metal, really, that was the, when the penny dropped to say, yeah, okay, there's something here that we have the potential to revolutionize an industry. We didn't know what, we didn't know what industry that was still still to come but that belief then really grew very strong and that's what draws me to, to 3d printing as a as a technique yeah and i imagine too starting off in kind of the aerospace sector obviously you get the exposure to very cutting edge technology budget is sometimes an, an object like a, a concern yeah. but but the other thing that i've enjoyed of, with some of other conversations with folks that have come from airspace and, and do additive is there is an appreciation there's a healthy appreciation for 
quality requirements and testing and robustness of whether it's design or your materials or your process, but also this open-mindedness to say, okay, I see the path. We're probably not there yet with some applications, but kind of, it sounds like kind of similar to you where like, Hey, you had that kind of foundational respect for materials and, and process and doing it right. But then this new way was, was kind of creeping in on that. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think in the beginning, as I say, my, my, I had no background in metal and it wasn't something I'd ex- been exposed to before, nor, nor uh, my fellow founder, and Andrew Collins. And we had to start somewhere. We just had this kernel of an idea that we were going to change the world. Uh, we had to backfill how. So we didn't know how, we just knew we were going to, we had to backfill how we were going to do that. And so the start of that journey was great. We've got a piece of metal. It's a lever. We're not going to change the world with a lever and we're not going to change the world first time. So we had to, had to backfill that. And we really began with exactly that. What do we need to know in order to gain confidence in the direction we're going to travel? Because without understanding the limitations and without being able to draw the box of what's possible. You don't know how you can fit within that. And so that's what we did to begin with. We, we spent 18 months or so um, understanding the limitations of the process and, and understanding the limitations also gives you exposure to what the opportunities are. And we began just with material properties what, are, what actually are the material properties? And this was in 2013. So nobody, there was no great rule book on what, the, what metal could actually do. There was an understanding of Young's modulus, an understanding of tensile strength. But there was very little exposure to products in the real world. So what happens when you have something that's metal printed operating in a in an environment that it's meant to operate in does it survive and that's what we had to investigate and and we teamed up with 3t am in in the uk and we worked with them to develop a a really good set of material properties and we focused on for us what was going to be real world mechanical properties which happened to be fatigue and so we we did a huge amount of fatigue testing. And one of the things that set us apart at the time, less so today, but at the time we didn't post-process the material. We didn't machine it down into standard dog bones. We just printed our own designed standard coupon and tested it. And I talked about pennies dropping earlier. And the next penny that dropped for us was this material is strong. And we had a really hard focus on meraging steel. And it was very strong, stronger than we thought it would be. Um, so much so that we had to redesign the coupons that we tested with. We had to increase the diameter of these pressure vessels because we couldn't break them, even when they were 0.25 millimeters thick. So pretty thin walled stuff, and we just couldn't break it at maybe five, 6,000 PSI. So I think we quadrupled the diameter of the material in order to find out where it breaks. And that, that was revelationary. It was saying, yeah, this is going to be a production process. This is a real thing. We can, 
we can produce parts on this, components that can be designed for infinite life, aerospace-grade components, you know? Aerospace-grade, as much as anything for me, means that it's safe and it can be designed to last. And that was what we had proven. And alongside that, we proved the design freedoms. And whilst it's true to say with 3D printing that not everything is possible, you can't print anything. And that's often said that you can't print anything. But that, in my mind, kind of misses the point because you can print a whole lot more than you could 10 years ago. And the opportunities for design freedom in printing is still huge. And that was great for us and that background and that that base level understanding in material properties, particularly outcome-based properties for us, fatigue strength, gave us the ability to design products that were able to add value. And what I mean by that is we were able to understand the economics of the process. We were able to design products that used the right amount of material we made them as light as they could possibly be, but only because we had a really deep understanding of the mechanical properties and the, the untreated mechanical properties. Because if you have to machine every surface, you probably shouldn't be printing it. And yeah. therefore, the mechanical properties need to be based upon the as-printed surface, at least in part, on the product. Sure. So it was really and useful. And so as you were doing all this, you said kind of 18 month material investigation and, and testing, was this still part of the, the aerospace work you were doing or kind of as you were starting with, with Domin? No, this was Domin. So this was okay. after we had founded the company. Okay. Um, we, we set off somewhat with um, uh, an ambition and a, and a hope in the beginning and did, did this base level work as, as a new startup company. And we did, as I say, that was an 18-month fixed program, actually, of saying that this is what we're going to try and understand. And the, the purpose of that, the objective was, can you make products in hydraulics? And we focused on hydraulics. Can you make products for hydraulics? Can you deliver real-world mechanical properties? And what are the design freedoms? And for us, that 18-month project has become a, a 10-year journey to where we are today in that mechanical testing we still continue to do and we we test every product that we make and i will touch on quality because you mentioned it earlier and i think it's a fascinating thing with printing but we have carried out hundreds of millions of cycles fatigue loaded cycles on 3d printed uh, metal and I don't think there are many other companies in the world that have carried out hundreds of millions of cycles um, and hundreds of millions of cycles on products, not just specimens. Um, and we do that because of our approach to quality. And one of the challenges we found in the beginning in the aerospace world, I think a lot of the challenges are being solved, but in the beginning, it was how do you manage quality within printing? And Printing in some ways is really simple. You just build up layer by layer. Every layer you add, the part grows. Really nice and simple. It sounds easy. But in terms of quality control, I seem to remember within a, a laser powder bed, the laser parameters, there's something like 180 parameters you're controlling. 
And when you're thinking about CNC machining, you're maybe thinking about rate, feed, speed, or whatever, a couple of parameters that you're, you're measuring. You can't measure 180 parameters and, and really properly understand them. And this was a big problem in aerospace because it was then how do we actually control? How do we get consistency? How do we know that the product's going to be safe every time? And we thought a lot about this. How do we do that? How do we overcome that problem? And actually, the first thing we did is say, okay, well, the first way we're going to overcome it is create real-world data. And what that meant for us is not real-world in our laboratories, but real-world in terms of with customers. And so we pivoted in order to supply the industrial industry because we would be able to actually sell products into the industrial world that would then show a use case and evidence back into more safety-critical environments because whilst aerospace is deemed to be safety-critical, that's not to say that somebody who has the die-casting machine is happy for it to break. That's just not the case. So you still have to have a high-quality product. Um, so what do we do about printing? How do we manage quality in printing? We effectively came to the conclusion that it's almost immeasurable. It's almost impossible to measure the quality control of printing because the cost of measurement, the complexity of measurement is so high that by the time you've measured it, you've made a product that's too expensive to sell. And so what we did instead was set ourselves aggressive KPIs for the cost of quality. We said for, we're not gonna spend more than a few percent of the total cost of manufacture on quality. And that would be made up of the actual cost of measuring, the cost of scrap, the cost of false positives, and the cost of failures in the real world. That's the hardest one to quantify, right? What does it cost Domin to have a product fail in the real world? I mean, it can be quite high. So, so that's what we set ourselves an aggressive target and we said, well, how will we measure it? And because we were using steel and because our products fail through fatigue, if they're going to break, it's a fatigue break. You're, it won't be a, an ultimate break. We said, well, steel has a flat runoff. So once you have cycled pressure on steel a million times or 10 million times, you can almost guarantee that you can cycle that pressure another 10 million times, another 50 million times. And so we test every single product that we print a million times. So we cycle every product through a million pressure cycles to guarantee a quality product. And to date, we haven't had a single product fail. That's amazing. And, and so as, as you're starting the company, you're doing a lot of this learning, testing, kind of building kind of your thesis, your kind of hypothesis of how you want to run the company. You know, a big part of it as well is like product market fit in terms of this is all for, for not if you find you, you're making something that no one wants to buy. Right. And yeah. so how, how did that kind of piece come into it or evolve over the, the time when you're, you're doing all this fatigue data and testing and other mechanical inspection testing? Yeah. Not easily. It's the short answer. It's not obvious. 
But the longer answer and the better answer is that you have to think really carefully about what you're going to print. It isn't obvious. And whilst I really fully believe that printing has the opportunity to revolutionise industries, and certainly within the hydraulics industry where we operate, it's going to fundamentally change the way products work, the products look, how you integrate and how they function. But it's not obvious how it's done. And we started with the question of how can we add value using metal 3D printing? It's not enough to sell a product on the back of the fact that it's printed. Nobody cares. Right. No, no one actually cares. It's a, this is a so what question. We've made this thing with metal, so what? And that's a great question because there is not, you haven't done anything different. So we had to work out how we were going to add value with it. And again, this was 2014. And in that time, metal printing was really expensive. And that was being pushed in the media a huge amount and pushed in the AM circles of printing is really expensive. And, and the word expensive is, a, is in itself a fascinating word because it's got no benchmark. I mean, what is expensive? It has no, there's nothing that quantifies it. What they meant and, and what is meant in the metal 3D printing world is in order for it to be economically viable, you have to add significant value. And if, if you add more value than it costs, it's not expensive. And so we, we were in this, in this problem statement. We've got a process that is relatively slow. And that is true. It was slow at the time. And that meant that we did have to think really carefully about it. And the, the way we thought about it was, okay, the cost of printing is pretty much proportional to the weight. And therefore, the heavier the product, the more expensive you need to sell it for, the higher the cost. And so we said to ourselves, right, okay, what is a small, a small product that is of high value that we can make great? And for us, that was a, a hydraulic servo valve. And that is, it's a product that's been around for decades. It was originally designed in the 1950s and it hasn't changed a lot since then. And it's used in a lot of industries and they range from maybe the size of a, a fist to, well, maybe in the most extreme, the size of a small torso. But the small ones that are a size of a fist still retail for thousands of dollars. And therefore we had this, we set ourselves a target of 300 grams of steel. That's the most we could use. And with that 300 grams, we had to be able to sell a product for a few thousand dollars. And that's what we did. And the way we did it wasn't just by looking at valves that exist today and printing it. We sat down and said, okay, what does the customer want? What's the function that we have to achieve here? And it can simplistically be said to be the, the high-speed control of oil. That's ultimately what people want. They want to be able to determine whether the oil flows in one direction or another and control it quickly and accurately. And that's it. Um, there's a whole host of peripheral features as well, but that was what, that's what the market wants. 
And so we took a step back from the way things are done today and we said, let's start from first principles, look at the entire technology stack, use 3D printing as one of those pieces in the technology stack, but it's not the, it's not the panacea. And we added in high-performance um, motor design. We added modern electronic circuit board design, modern control theory, um, designed for production, designed for manufacture, and start setting it up for the future. So we design it to be ready to be digitally enabled, connected to the internet. And we use all these building blocks and technology to be able to deliver a product that couldn't be done before. And the products that we sell cannot be made in any other way and they have added value in a way that they couldn't have created that value if you were using traditional if you like substitute subtractive technologies and so do you kind of take that uh framework and and apply it to new products that you're thinking about in in the future as well as like okay we've got this amount of weight and it's got to be less than this this price and, and that's kind of our our baseline starting point yeah we we tend to look at it in a slightly different way today um almost the reverse we almost flip it so in the very beginning it was so blue sky it was sort of we've got a couple of hundred grams let's sell it for this whereas now it's it's more market-led more customer-led and it's here's the problem statement whatever that problem statement might be say it's looking to develop an active suspension system and we say, okay, well, we know what the outcome has to be. We know the value of that system. How much do we have to play with? And the first question, the first stage gate is, is that economically viable? And it doesn't have to be economically viable today, but it has to be economically viable. It has to be a path to becoming economically viable. So it's a slightly reverse way around today is we know how much value we can create. And it's saying, okay, how many grams can we spend on that? with our forecasted cost down of printing. And one of the great things for us as a business is a lot of our cost down work is done by other people. So people who are creating new 3D printers that are creating great products, printers that can print more, print quicker, print bigger, print faster, that are making our products cheaper and increasing our horizon. So knowing that the price of the process is going to come down every year, and it has done, it's come down every year since I've started in this world, and it will continue to come down, means that our horizons open up. And you can see the cost of weight that you need to achieve in, in certain industries. So aerospace has a really high cost that they're prepared to associate with weight. And this is one of the reasons why 3D printing was so sort of pushed in aerospace in the beginning because you can make products lighter and that's so valuable. Um, and that means that if you can save a kilogram, let's say it's worth a certain amount in aerospace, let's say one to $5,000. Um, and with printing today, you can achieve that. You can make those sorts of savings and attribute that sort of cost. But we know that with the cost of printing reducing, effectively every time you can save a bit of weight and, and everyone values weight to a certain extent even if it's just your cost of shipping that's almost the most extreme but eventually 3d printing gets to the point where it's so cheap that you can add that value of weight to almost any industry and we see it going that way um, and that's going to come through technological advances in printing processes 
And we see that all the time. All the, all the things that these great companies are doing are benefiting the applications industry. But the other thing that's not often talked about, but is at least as powerful, are the economies of scale. Metal 3D printers are being sold in hundreds off, maybe. But you don't get the economies of scale from an automotive world that, where there are 80 million cars sold a year. Those, they're just such different scales. And as printing gets adopted more, as metal printing gets ever more adopted, you start selling thousands of machines and then 10,000s of machines. And that price is just going to plummet. And it's going to plummet through economies of scale alongside the technology. And that's a great thing. And I imagine, too, one of the evolutions that I've seen, at least on the customer side, is that there's a willingness to evaluate printed parts from a broader context to say, okay, one for one, it may not be, it's more expensive. But if I'm getting value in terms of, of weight, or that helps me in sustainability, it seems like just the general populace, the general thought right now is that people are willing to look at some of the other, maybe less tangible benefits of, of going down that direction. Absolutely. I think that's completely true. And I, one of the things that, that we had when we started, uh, there was, as I've talked about it myself, 3D printing is going to change the world. How? Tell me how. Nobody knows. Nobody knew. There were no examples you could point to and say, yeah, look, this is how they've done it. This is what you can do to change the world. This is how you can create that value. This is how you can do things differently. And I think that that makes life really difficult because inspiration is so important for, for revolution. Um, and we see around us now a few more examples of products that have used metal 3D printing to create value. I think we were fortunate enough to count ourselves in that camp is that we've created a product that is more sustainable. It is lighter, it's smaller, it's faster. And all those things combined can start to really make people think, okay, well, look, this is what's possible. And we set ourselves the target to not just be lighter, but be all those things. So the opportunities for printing so great, you can do so many things. So let's pick the things that are really going to change the world. And that's products that are better than they are today, smaller than they are today, lighter, more sustainable, higher performance, more quickly able to be developed. You know, all these things that aggregate together to show what really is possible. And I think you're right that, it, that people are becoming more accepting and, and more inspired to think about how they can add that value. It's not just weight. Weight is one thing you can do but it's not the only thing. And the way you make things lighter fundamentally is not by making the same thing, but hollowing it out more. It's by thinking about how you achieve the function and doing it differently. Uh, one of the stories we like in Domin is there's a bridge in the UK called Iron Bridge. And it was one of the first bridges, if not the first bridge, made of steel or made of iron. And uh, 
it was made by somebody who had been making wooden bridges for their whole life. And so it was a bridge that was designed like a wooden bridge. It was designed to take the load through compression. And if you looked at it from a distance, you would think it was made of wood. And it, it, did it last longer? Yes, it did. Was it stronger? Yeah. But it didn't revolutionize things. It didn't make the span wasn't bigger. Whereas we look at bridges today and the span you can get on a steel bridge today is incredible. But that hasn't happened because we've taken the way that you make wooden bridges and evolved it. Somebody said, okay, we have this whole new material. We can now think about doing the function, which is crossing an obstacle, but doing it in a completely different way. And I think that's the approach that in order to really create value, to add value and to revolutionize, you've got to think about doing the function, the outcome, the goal, but in a completely different way. And then the benefits that you can bring are incredible. And so switching gears a little bit, I'm, I'm always interested in talking to, to founders as they, like, you've done an awesome job explaining the vision and kind of what you guys do, kind of, kind of the more the meat and potatoes of, uh, of kind of running a business. Like, how did you grow the team? Kind of what, how has it evolved from kind of a, uh, a, a small one or two person operation to kind of what, where you guys are today? Yeah, hard work, I think, is, uh, again, the short answer. No, it's great. It's one of the things that brings me most joy. Actually, we talked about my vision for creating opportunity. I like, I like to think about giving people choices. I think choice is a really powerful thing. If you have choices, you have freedom, you have control, you can, you can start to, to live your life as you choose to do. And so growing the team, creating a, a business that we're we're creating jobs in the purest sense that every, every single person we employ is adding value. And that's such a joyous thing to know that we're giving people opportunity. And that's an incredible thing. And it, it is one of, the, one of the best things about what we do is being able to, to see people join us and to know that without Domin they'd be doing something else, I'm sure, but that we created these opportunities for them. Um, growing a team is a really difficult thing, and we're really fortunate that we do have a, a great group of people here. And we're, we're situated in Bristol in the UK, um, alongside a, a, a factory in Poland, and we've got access to great talents. We're surrounded by some good universities, um, we have a really ambitious vision and those things have really helped us recruit great people because ever more people want to change the world. They don't want to just come and do a mundane activity. And I think there's not often you get that opportunity to, to be part of something like that. And we're on that journey and it's a powerful thing. And, and we see it and we've recently moved into a, a new headquarters in, in Bristol and it's great to have the team together and, and see what's possible. Um, but it continues to be a key thing for us. It's one of our core values as a business. We have four and people are one of them and 
hiring great people and helping to keep great people is a, a real challenge, but it is great. One of the things that I like about the the podcast is we get to hear from a lot of people with different experiences, different backgrounds, all kind of working in and around additive manufacturing. And so kind of where you stand today, kind of your career path, kind of what would be a, a lessons learned that you'd like to pass down to, to someone just starting kind of their journey on in the industry? Within 3D printing specifically, I think... I would be looking to advise people to be getting a good grounding in the, the technology. It's incredible the opportunities that it gives, but with great uh, breadth of opportunity comes increased complexity. Mm-hmm. And don't underestimate that that complexity can catch you out because you, you don't know what you don't know. And we're in an industry where a lot of the, the industry doesn't know what they don't know. And, and that's a challenge because that's not often the case. Most of the time you can look for an expert in the field. But if we're honest, there are a lot of things that are happening at the moment within the technology that people don't know what they don't know. And so that's what I would encourage people is really try to understand it, understand what's possible. Think from first principles. Think about the outcome and take a holistic approach to how you can use the technology. I think that's where I would start. Awesome. And so last question of, of the day, um, kind of what are you excited about? Kind of we're getting towards the end of 2021, kind of going into 2022. What's, what's exciting? What's kind of exciting you to kind of come to work every day and, and innovate and, and do new things? I think the biggest thing is that the problem statement in the industry that we're in and the hydraulics industry is a huge a huge part of the world and it was described to me once as a capillary industry and what i mean by that is it facilitates other things to happen and so it facilitates planes to fly cars to drive ships to to sail and trains to move and things but you don't see it you never see hydraulics it's it's hidden and that means that it can exist behind the public gaze and it's an industry that has remained unchanged for 50 years 60 years you know and alongside that it's a it's an inefficient industry. It contributes a huge amount towards global warming figures, towards CO2 emissions, more than double the whole aerospace industry. So the hydraulics industry contributes twice as much CO2 emissions as aerospace. And that in itself is a little bit astonishing because I would hazard a guess that most people don't realize that. I didn't know that. (laughs) No. And we're talking billions of tons of CO2 that this industry is emitting. And one of the reasons for that is because it's big and it's in everything and we use it for so many things. And that's great. But one of the other, the other reasons is the efficiency of the systems in the industry and Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the US did a study a few years ago and they found 
that on average, hydraulic systems were only about 23% efficient. And just to pause on that, that means 77% of the energy used in hydraulic systems is wasted. And that's crazy. Now, that's a bad place to be, but it's also a great place because it means that there's an incredible amount that we can do to facilitate positive change within that industry. And so that's one of the drivers for us. And we've been developing technology that has a step change in efficiency. And it doesn't just say, well, let's go from 23% to 30%. It does exactly what we've been talking about. It says, let's take a step back. What do we need to achieve here? Well, we need to achieve a sustainable future. And that means that the amount of energy that we use must be balanced with the amount of energy that we can, we can generate through wind and, and solar and things. And so we're saying, well, we need to then be creating systems that can be up to 90% efficient. So moving from 23% to 90%. And that's, that's what we call revolution, is that sort of change, 400% increase in efficiency. And we've got technology that can do that. And what that means is we can create a world and we can bring people along with us. We can bring other companies along with us and we can create a world that becomes better we have products that are better. We have systems that are more integrated. But most importantly, we, we're creating a sustainable future. And there's an opportunity to save a billion tons of CO2 per year within the hydraulics industry. And that's a huge amount. And to give you a gauge and to explain why it's so big and so exciting is that that is three times the entire output of the UK every year. And that's what gets me excited is the opportunity to make the world better, make an impact and deliver revolutionary change in an industry that has the potential to make a huge impact. And that's enough to get me out of bed most days, I think. That's amazing. I'm, I can't wait to kind of continue to follow the journey that you guys are on and seeing kind of where you guys take it from here. And, and we'll, we'll throw a bunch of links in. You sent me a, a, an article you guys wrote on fatigue, which I found super interesting. And we'll post all that when we post the podcast. And I want to thank you for, for joining the show, sharing kind of what, what you've been through on kind of your entrepreneurial and, and engineering journey and, and all the exciting things that are ahead. Um, I'm excited to, to see, see where it goes. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. Really enjoyed it.